0: The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Like, do you remember being like 10, 11, 12 years old? I look around the room. For some of you, that wasn't that long ago. Sure, I remember. That was easy. For some of you, that was a little while ago, wasn't it? For some of you the world looks very different today than it did when you were 10 or 11, right? I mean, I think of the changes that have come about in the world, even in my own lifetime. I mean, I was 10 like three decades ago. And I remember that time um, fairly well. The cool thing for me was I got a donut shop like for my birthday. Not really, but... My parents bought a donut shop, and we—they changed careers, and we moved. And I always said I got a donut shop. I love donuts, (laughs) and that's when it started. Right about when I was nine years old, ten years old, eleven years old. Think back to that phase in your life. There is so much that you didn't know, wasn't there? I discovered I really like donuts. I knew that I really liked riding my bike around. I really liked to uh, kick a ball around in the backyard, play soccer, those those were the things that I wanted to spend my time doing when I was 10. So fast forward a lot of years, and I have four kids now who have all made it past that 10, 11, 12-year-old phase. My youngest is 13. She was the one on the end over here. My oldest is away at college. And I remember when she was, well, when she was younger, like five or six, she wanted a stage. Like, what do you want for your birthday? I want a stage. Like, what do you mean you want a stage? Well, I want a stage. Build me a stage, Daddy. And because I'm a chump, and my daughters have me wrapped around their finger. Guess what I learned to do? Not build a big stage, but I got a piece of plywood and some two by fours and I built her a stage. I don't think I'd ever, I built a pot holder or plant holder, a plant pot. I think it was supposed to be a pencil box, but it ended up being something different when I was a kid in wood shop. But I learned how to screw things together, nail things together cover things with nice varnish, and I made a stage. It was smaller than this little tiny section, but she was five, and she loved it. And I thought, that is the weirdest thing. Like, what kid wants, like, why? It was a phase. She wanted a stage, and I figured she'll, she'll grow out of it. But sometimes a phase that we might think somebody needs to grow out of is more than a phase, And instead of just waiting for them to grow out of it, we need to help them grow through it. And when we think of the the next generations, whatever phase of life you are in or they are in, we need to be growing through those phases. Today, that little five-year-old girl is in the middle of a residency helping lead worship at a, a great church out in Omaha. And it's been fun to watch her grow through the different phases. It's been fun to watch my other kids. One of them is back there in the back pushing buttons. Another one was up here playing guitar. Another one was over here singing. It's been fun to watch them grow through the phases of their lives. But there are some things, if you're a parent, you realize you kinda just want to grit your teeth And hold on and wait for them to get through that phase. And I want to challenge you a little bit today. Let's not just focus so much on getting through the phases as actually growing through the phases. Because the next generation is, they're really, um, they're counting on us to help them discover is this just a phase or is this a calling? Because they're trying things. They experiment in things. Uh, our oldest, when she was in fifth grade, her school was doing a talent show. And she came to me and she said, Dad, I want to sing this song for the talent show. And it was kind of a hard song to sing. And I'd ne- she'd never sung in front of people before. This would have been the first time. We'd heard her sing like in the shower, singing around the house. She was always going. She wasn't always on the same tune as everything else or the same key as everything else. She didn't know what any of that stuff even meant, but she just loved to sing, and she wanted to sing for the talent show, and I tried really hard to talk her into doing something easier because I didn't want her to embarrass herself. I thought, this is a phase That I wanna help you just, just make it through. But the truth was, it wasn't just a phase. Even that early in her life, it was a calling. And I thank God that she was stubborn enough to say, No, I want to sing, and I want to sing this song for the talent show. And so we relented, and she sang the song, and she's been singing ever since. It wasn't just a phase. It was a calling, and it became a calling because we learned as parents to help her grow through it, not just grit our teeth and hope she gets out of it soon. Now, I've been talking a little bit parent-wise here, but I I don't want you to tune out if you're not a parent, okay? Or if your kids are old enough that they've passed all those hard phases, they're adults now, they're fine, they're doing great. Phew, whether you have kids at home, whether you have kids at all, or whether you will ever have kids, I believe that God is calling you to make disciples of the next generation. I believe that because that's exactly what Jesus modeled for us. When he came and made disciples, it wasn't a gather up the people around me that are just like me and I'll make disciples of them. It was whoever is going to come is going to come. In the book of Malachi, we find Israel in a particular phase where they were missing the mark greatly. Instead of, instead of following passionately after God and, and faithfully after God, it seems that they were at a low spot. They were They weren't paying attention to God at all. They were going through the motions of some religious things, but they were out of sync with him. They found themselves in a phase where they were missing the mark. They were looking in the wrong places for God to prove his love. And they were dishonoring him with disrespectful offerings. They were bringing the blind, the lame and the sick as their sacrifices to him. They were bringing offerings to God that were worth less than what God deserved. And why would God be pleased with that? He said, no, this is not acceptable. So I'm going to read through a little bit of that here in Matthew 1. I've always loved you, says the Lord. But you retort, really, have you loved us? And the Lord replies, this is how I showed my love for you. I loved your ancestor Jacob, but I rejected his brother Esau and devastated his hill country. I turned Esau's inheritance into a desert for jackals. Esau's descendants in Edom may say, we've been shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. But the Lord of heaven's armies replies, they may try to rebuild, but I'll demolish them again. Their country will be known as the land of wickedness and their people will be called the people with whom the Lord is forever angry. When you see the destruction for yourselves, you will say, truly, the Lord's greatness reaches far beyond Israel's borders. The Lord of heaven's armies says to the priests, a son honors his father and a servant respects his master. If I'm your father and master, where are the honor and respect that I deserve? You've shown contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we ever shown contempt for your name? You've shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices at my altar, Then you ask, how have we defiled the sacrifices? You defile them by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is. Go ahead, beg God to be merciful to you. But when you bring that kind of offering, why should he show you any favor at all? Ask the Lord of heaven's armies. How I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered i'm not pleased with you and i will not accept your offerings but my name is honored by people of other nations from morning till night all around the world they offer sweet incense and pure offerings in honor of my name for my name is great among the nations says the lord of heaven's armies What a contrast is drawn for us here. The nation that was chosen by God was rejecting him while the nations around them were showing greater reverence and honor to God, even though they didn't have the covenant. We need to understand that. Israel as a nation, was brought into this covenant relationship with God. The very reason they were making sacrifices and bringing offerings to God was because of that covenant. It was a covenant that he meant for life and peace, Malachi tells us in a couple minutes. And yet, they had rejected the life and peace that God was offering them. They were settling for less than what he intended. And they were giving him less than he deserved. And yet the nations around them who had not been invited into that covenant with the Levitical priesthood, who had not been initiated into the system of sacrifice that God had with Israel, God says, those people, those outsiders that you shun so well, they are honoring my name. In our culture today, we, we see all kinds of news about how terrible things are getting. And, and I mean, there's the, the current flare-up issues. But I mean, just in general, we hear about how kids these days don't care about this, and they don't do this, and they don't want that. They just don't. Why can't they get with the program? Um, I'm here to tell you what you just saw up here with these kids, those kids, leading us. That's not an anomaly. Like Michaela mentioned, they do that every week. Um, and they don't just do that in leading songs. Those kids lead worship with their lives. In the way that they run in cross country and the way that they play football and the way that they do their homework, the way that they just live in class and out of class, in this building and out of this building, they lead worship. They don't always do it the way that me or my parents or my grandparents might do it. But they are concerned with giving God the best that they can. And there are so many like them in their generation. As a body, I love the way we have built an environment that allows them to engage, not just at the side, doing their own thing, but lets them engage as a part of the body. Because without their connections to all of us, they're gonna have a really hard time maintaining that right relationship with God and maintaining that walk with Christ. So I just wanna encourage you, continue to do everything you can, not just to pat them on the back and encourage them, but to come alongside them and worship with them and serve with them and reach out to the world with them because what they are in right now is not just a phase, it's a calling. And I love seeing them discover their calling and then seeing others of you help them flesh that out. Israel's problem was that they were missing a clear view of God. And there are many in um, in younger generations today that also are missing a clear view of God. They don't see who he really is and so really what they've done is they've rejected a God that they don't know. Many of the things that us older generations complain about the younger generations as far as their outlook on life stem from the fact that they have rejected a God who is not really God. They've rejected a religious system that is not really discipleship, that is not really relationship with Jesus. And so they end up like Israel, giving a lesser sacrifice to an unworthy counterfeit. There's a researcher named Christian Smith that describes the current sort of overwhelming philosophy, even among a lot of Christian youth, as a moralistic, therapeutic deism. And there's another writer named Hayden Shaw who who wrote a book called Generational IQ. If you want to look up something that will help you interact with other generations, Hayden Shaw, uh, Generational IQ is, is a great book for that. And in his book, he describes that same, same sort of system as be good, do good, or yeah, be good, feel good, and live your life. And God is watching. But it's not an actively involved God. It's a far off God that doesn't really engage with us, that doesn't really interact with us. I gotta be honest, if I was 15 years old, I would reject that system too. In fact, at 45, I hope I always reject that system as well because the truth is I can't be good enough and I will never feel good about that. And God is not just some God way off up there that set things spinning and then just watches. He is a God who wants to engage with his people just like he did with Israel. that line in verse 10 always kills me. I wish someone would just shut the temple doors because there are people that worry that that the church is dying. The younger generations are just walking away in droves. Let me put something to rest for you for a minute. There are many in the younger generations who, who have not chosen to be disciples of Jesus. And there are many in younger generations that will continue to choose to not engage in church. But if we will help them grow by giving them a clearer picture of who God is, that is reversible. And while there are many who are staying away from church, there are also many who are discovering church doesn't always have to look like this, what we're doing here today. If there's anything that we've been able to figure out in the last six months, it should be that we can do things differently. There is a a power in gathering together in big groups, but there's an intimacy to gathering together in smaller groups that is every bit as powerful. It's just a, a different focus. So I wish someone would shut the temple doors. I don't think, I'm not drawing a parallel here, okay? Like we shouldn't just lock up the building and forget that, we're not doing that anymore. What Malachi is saying here on behalf of God is that when we bring God less than what he deserves, we might as well not bring God anything. And I would say in today's world, many people are doing just that. They see a lot of people bringing worthless sacrifices of an hour on Sunday morning to a God that they don't really know. And so they've rejected that system. Like if, if all we do is get together for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. And that doesn't change anything about what we do tomorrow and Tuesday and Thursday. The next generation shouldn't follow that. God deserves our lives. The way Paul said it in Romans was that we should offer ourselves as a living sacrifice That's a continual action. That's something that we do day in and day out. That's us setting ourselves in front of God and saying, what can I do? What would you like? Here I am. Send me where you want. But you say, it's too hard to serve the Lord. This is in verse 13. It's too hard to serve the Lord, and you turn up your noses at my commands," says the Lord of heaven's armies. Think of it, animals that are stolen. Could you imagine that? Okay, not only are you gonna bring a blind animal as a sacrifice when you should have brought the best of your flock as a sacrifice, you're gonna go steal someone else's animal and then offer it to me? How is that okay? So, we're not in a sacrificial system like this. And so we're stuck talking here about sacrifices, bringing animals that are perfect and unblemished. And maybe that's hard to to connect with, but let let me encourage you, give God your best. Not your neighbor's best, your best. Maybe you see these kids up here singing, giving God what they have to give. And you think, I can't ever do that. I'm never going to sing on a stage. That's okay. That's their best. That's not your best. Your best might be something completely different. Um, I know a number of preachers that, that make the joke about when the music starts, my microphone gets turned off because no one wants to hear me singing. I've I've spent some time with some of those guys. I'm not going to call anybody out because this is getting recorded. So, and three of the ministers that I've worked with, like three of the senior pastors that are in the room today, actually, um, I'm not calling out any of you guys. Although I have heard some admissions from some circles. Um, you don't have to give what somebody else has to give. You give what you have to give. In chapter two, God is going to offer up a clearer picture of who he is with, with a warning. And it's kind of a gross warning. So there's your fair warning for that. Listen, you priests, this command is for you. In their system of sacrifice, the priests were in charge of either accepting or rejecting the sacrifices that the people were bringing. And so if the people were bringing an insufficient sacrifice, it was the priest's job in part. I mean, they did way more than just this, but Their responsibility was to acknowledge that is not the sacrifice that God deserves. And yet the priests were not doing that. They were doing exactly the opposite. Hey, let me help you cut corners so that I can gain even more. Listen to me and make up your minds to honor my name, says the Lord of heaven's armies, or I will bring a terrible curse against you. I will curse even the blessings you receive. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you've not taken my warning to heart. I will punish your descendants and splatter your faces with the manure from your festival sacrifices and I will throw you on the manure pile. That's gross. God takes this stuff seriously. He said, then at least you will know it was I who sent you this warning so that my covenant with the Levites can continue, says the Lord of heaven's armies. The purpose of my covenant with the Levites Was to bring life and peace, and that is what I gave them. This required reverence from them, and they greatly revered me and stood in awe of my name. They passed on to the people the truth of the instructions they received from me. They didn't lie or cheat, they walked with me, living good and righteous lives, and they turned many from lives of sin. Again, there's a contrast between what the priests are doing and what the Levites had been called to do in the beginning of this covenant and had done faithfully. And the, the consequences were pretty dire. The words of a priest's lip should preserve knowledge of God and people should go to him for instructions for the priest is the messenger of the Lord of heaven's armies. But you priests have left God's paths. Your instructions have caused many to stumble into sin. You've corrupted the covenant I made with the Levites. So I have made you despised and humiliated in the eyes of all the people for you have not obeyed me, but have shown favoritism in the way you carry out my instructions. See, the purpose of this covenant that God made with Levi and with the people of Israel was to bring life and peace, not only for the people of Israel, but for all the nations of the world. That was the promise God made even back to Abraham. I will make you a great nation and through that nation, I will bless all the nations. We see that fulfilled in Jesus and what he has done. They were still waiting for that fulfillment. But in the meantime, there was a right relationship that they could live in with God, but they weren't. Instead of passing on the truth, they had left God's paths. They had chosen to lie and cheat the way exactly they were called to not. Instead of living in a right relationship with God, they had corrupted the covenant with their own favoritism. And so because of, because of that, instead of turning many from lives of sin, they led people right into the life of sin that they should have been avoiding. Are we not all children of the same father? This is in In chapter 2, verse 10, are we not all created by the same God? Then why do we betray each other, violating the covenant of our ancestors? Judah has been unfaithful, and a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. The men of Judah have defiled the Lord's beloved sanctuary by marrying women who worship idols. May the Lord cut off from the nation of Israel every last man who has done this and yet brings an offering to the Lord of heaven's armies. Israel had been called to be set apart. But by this time in history, they had done almost as much as they could do to just assimilate and blend in to the rest of the cultures around them. I wonder if if we flirt a little bit too much with that same tendency? How different does your daily life look from that of your neighbors that are not here today or a part of any other church? Does your life look different than the lives of the people that you work with who do not believe that Jesus is who he says he is? There should be differences. There should be a hope about us that causes them to ask questions. And Peter said that we should always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have when we are asked. Sometimes we think of evangelism and we, we think of you know the guy on the corner with a bullhorn shouting that the end is near. We think of the, the people knocking on doors and Asking, do you know where you're going to go when you die? And we think that is evangelism. But the picture that Peter gives us of evangelism is be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. That requires you to be living a life of hope that looks different, markedly so, than the people around you. Even in the face of difficult circumstances it is it is so telling when we as christians face the same difficulties that everyone else around us faces and yet we walk through them so differently it's because of the hope What's the worst that could happen? The worst that could happen if you are in Christ is you get to go home earlier than the rest of us. And while we mourn the loss, we don't mourn without hope. Because we know that what we see here on this earth is not all that there is. And when we live with hope, we let the next generations see God more clearly. Guys, let let me be really, really clear. The next generation's need so badly to see hope because the philosophies of life that the world is offering them, the ways of living that they are trying are so empty. The ways that they're being taught to handle their problems and the level of anxiety and stress that is now just an everyday thing are so devoid of power to actually help them live fully. See, because real life and peace doesn't come because of my coping mechanisms. It comes because of the presence of Christ. It comes because I live in right relationship with him. And I don't mean to make it sound like it's easy, because it's not. It's not a simple matter of Just do what Jesus tells you and everything will be great. And that's not what Malachi was saying either. Part of the problem that the people had here is they had listened to the prophets like Hezekiah when they were coming out of captivity in Babylon and him talking about how great things were going to be and the restoration that God was going to bring out and the temple would be rebuilt and the nation would be reestablished. And that sounds awesome. But 80 to 100 years later, when Malachi was writing, it still didn't seem like that was just coming to fruition. The temple was rebuilt, but just didn't seem like God was there the way that he used to be, or at least the way they heard their grandparents talk about. And I don't mean to imply that we need to give into some good old days type of thinking, because the truth is, as good as we remember it, it wasn't as good as we remember it right? As bad as we see it getting, it's also not getting as bad as we think it's getting because God is still God. Jesus is still on his throne at the right hand of his father and that will never change. Judah, with their unfaithfulness, had defiled the sanctuary. They had defiled their own nation, the people of God. The antidote to that is faithfulness. And Malachi points that out with a really, really sharp illustration. He says, Here's another thing you do you cover the Lord's altars with tears, weeping and groaning because he pays no attention to your offerings. And doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. It's because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young. But you've been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And and what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. So not only were they marrying women who were leading them to worship other gods, They were also not being faithful to the wives to whom God had united them. And Malachi's instruction is to guard your heart, remain loyal, remain faithful to the wife of your youth. That's not to say that if divorce has happened in your family, that you're doomed forever to be a displeasing person to God. Because of what Christ has done, there is restitution that he makes. Because of the blood of Christ, there's forgiveness for all kinds of wrong that has happened to us and all kinds of wrong that we have inflicted on others. And I don't want to throw out this divorce piece as a baseball bat that I'm gonna use to beat on you because that's not what God intended. What God intended is for us to live in faithful union with each other as a reflection of his loyalty to us and our loyalty to him. And his loyalty will never fade. His faithfulness will never waver. but ours does and Israel's did. And so God made another way. Malachi closes this chapter by saying that you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him? You ask. You have wearied him by saying that all who do evil are good in the Lord's sight. And he is pleased with them. You have wearied him by asking, where is the God of justice? It's easy to look at the physical blessings of life and think, God is pleased with those people. They're healthy, they're wealthy, things are going great for them. It seems like everything they do turns out right. God must be pleased. And then we look at the struggles in our own lives and we think, what am I doing wrong? I must have done something wrong. Where is the God of justice? Because we can't figure out, where did I go so wrong? I'm not so bad. I'm a good person. I treat people right. I care about other people. Why can't things go better for me? And we begin to feel sorry for ourselves. That's, that's what Israel was doing here. And that was wearying God. Instead, let us please Him with faithful integrity in every relationship, in every interaction with Him and with others around us. Because to give the next generations the best opportunity that they can have to experience God's love and his hope, the best opportunity we can give them to enter into a life that is fully lived in right relationship with God, we have to give them a clearer picture of who God is. And maybe that can start with responding to his love with faithful lives of integrity. And I think in that way, we can stop just gritting our teeth and hoping they're gonna get through the phase and we can actually help them grow through every phase.